Good morning. I'm Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter single origin coffee and always using the hashtag today's office. Now I'm picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind-the-scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, alone, as my own correspondent. This podcast takes place not on a shoot, because let's be honest, I didn't have very many of them this year, but in the place where I've spent most of the year, stuck, because of the pandemic, where I was inspired to begin this series, in the tiny North Atlantic island of Bermuda. While I pack for a work trip, which was so often it became an intuitive, methodical process, equipment gets packed first, split between my carry-on backpack and the bottom of my luggage, where my tripod was disassembled to fit in. I would have, in the top half of my checked luggage, things like my first aid kit, which would often need to be replenished, clothes for all types of environments necessary, rain, cold, extreme heat, you name it. Sometimes I'd go to a single place and all of them, all four seasons, would occur at once. The few odd extras that were location dependent, like a mosquito net, um, would also get packed and the absolute necessities. At least my travel coffee press, if not both that, and my hand grinder and travel pour-over set as well. I even, before the pandemic, purchased my own travel hot water boiler. On this faithful trip, my packing method was slightly different as I wasn't traveling for work. I would be traveling with my dog, and I only wanted to travel with carry-on luggage to make my trip as uneventful as possible. It did mean, though, choosing what I took very carefully. I brought the bare minimum. I even remember writing a list, checking it twice. There was no naughty or nice list, but some things made the cut and some things didn't. And some of those things that made the cut were my beloved camera and my travel coffee press. Since my dog would be on my back, I didn't take my usual backpack either, so everything had to fit in my carry-on wheelie bag. I did have to remind myself, after all, it was only a long weekend. There's enough half-decent coffee to survive on the island, and would I really need to take any photographs or video on a non-work-related trip? I will never question that again. Knowing what I know now, the answer should have been yes to all of the above. Everything makes the nice list. But I boarded my flight to Bermuda without my camera or my coffee press and the safe knowledge I'd be reunited with them in less than seven days time. I flew the day the WHO declared the pandemic. The world was changing faster than I could fly around it. I was going to visit my partner who was finishing a work contract in Bermuda. 
Bermuda is known for its pink sand beaches, its beautiful foliage and unique animal life. I was so excited to spend five days in this blissful little paradise. But that weekend, my weekend became much longer. As a doctor, my partner was asked to stay as the country went into a 24-hour lockdown where I ended up being separated not only from most of the humans I know in the world, but also my things. Most importantly, the things I use to create things with, like my camera. I hadn't been separated from a camera since I started taking photographs at the age of 14. For four weeks in 24-hour lockdown, it was mind-numbing at times and guilt-ridden. After all, I was passing the pandemic in a five-star hotel in what was essentially a prison paradise. What right did I have to complain? I'm from New York, and at the time living in London, and it was painful to watch both places and people I loved being pulverized by the pandemic. That guilt kept me silent. It grinded away at my mental health over the weeks. I did everything I could remotely to try and keep myself sane through the isolation. I would do solo workouts on, you know, phone app. I started learning a new language and writing more and remotely directed a documentary and started a podcast. For an initial two weeks that extended into four, people in Bermuda were only allowed to exercise within a half mile of their shelter and could only shop on certain days of the week depending on their last name. No one was on the roads with the exception of essential workers, some of those being taxi drivers. As foreigners aren't allowed to drive in Bermuda, I came to know one of those taxi drivers very well. And as lockdown restrictions lifted, his name is David, and he was the former warden of the prison in Bermuda. He's seen his fair share of difficult times on the island. And so a long trip from one end to the other I listened to him share some of those in reflection during COVID times. Let's get to know. So you don't want to be, you don't want to have four beeps at you because you owe money. And and if you do have it, you're like, I don't remember who gave him any money. (laughs) (laughs) Do, did you, did you ever have people that came, like, repeat, uh... Prisoners? Yeah. Yeah, we call it recidivism. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, that's all we have. I mean, that uh, a couple of guys there that were institutionalized. Oh, wow. We let, we let one of them out uh, six months early. Somebody, the um, secretary, made a mistake with their uh, discharge time and let them out six months earlier. And um, when he came out, they discharged him. Everybody was around. Congratulations. He had, been, he had done about 12 years. And um, you know, all the other prisoners were, hey, take care, be good now. Yeah, this, that, the other. So when he came out, he was a little restaurant or something. 
past the prison here. He was in there getting some of the getting breakfast. And then we realized that we had let him out six months too early. Well, and this is a big guy, one of the biggest, strongest, craziest guys in the prison. So we were like, uh-oh, how are we going to go tell him that he's got to come back to prison? So we, um, we gathered together about five or six officers, big, strong officers. I was one of them. Went down there to tell him, come on, we're going to put the handcuffs on you and take you back into prison. Oh, he was there eating it. After 12 or 14 years in prison, you got to learn how to use a fork and knife all over again. Because in prison, all, all you eat with is a spoon. Right. And um, we went down there, his, his name was, uh, I think it was uh, Smith, I forget his first name, but anyhow, we used to call him Eggs. Eggs Smith. Egg Smith. Eggs, yeah. We went down there, he was sitting down and having breakfast. And I was up to him and I said, Eggs, hey, come on, we're going to talk to you. Said, yeah? to do time for their, you know, their crimes. There's nothing wrong with that, but then to just leave them out on their own like that. To yeah, well, that's why I mean, he, was, he was one of those dead. Usually, you guys are there a long time of that. We, uh, a year or two before their release date, we sent them down what's called a prison farm, just on the other side of the airport down there. Oh. We send them there where they could have outdoor conditions, have you eat with a fork and knife and all that. We prepare them for release. But the dangerous one, we can't do that. Because you can just walk out. That's a minimum security. Your doors are not locked. You can come out at any time at all. And it's built on, you get to stay there because of the uh, trust in you. But we couldn't send a person like him down there. And he was in, every time he came to jail, it was for rape. Violent. He used to rape women violently. This one woman, believe it or not, was early in the morning. It sounds like a joke, but it's not. It's the truth. She would just come up and walk her dog. And he must have had him checked out. And he was this wall, a wall maybe about five, six feet high. And knew she'd come And this morning she was come by there, he, he was behind the wall. He just reached over, ripped her by her collar, and yanked her right over the wall. Poor dog was looking all around, didn't know what to do, what, where to go, what. And he pulled over the wall and raped her. That's terrible. But like I said, he was really about six foot four, strong, you know, powerfully built. Just naturally powerful. Doesn't make me get to do a lot of race. He escaped one time. Him and three other guys. How did they escape? Uh, by the old prison. They um, they were in the carpenter shop. Yeah, they were the um, like the hobby. They do hobby work prisoners. And he um, along with three other, it was two Bermudians, two Americans. One American was from uh, Miami. The other one. 
from Brooklyn, New York, and to to the meeting. They they, they were in the hobby shop, and the hobby shop had a, a, set, a room to the side where they cut up all the big logs, you know, like the big log cedar trees or whatever, to make uh, boards out of it. And um, this one particular inmate, he was on 15 minute observation. In other words, every 15 minutes, one of my officers had to go over and check, make sure that he was where he was supposed to be. And uh, he called me from over and said, Mr. Zhu, I can't find miners. I said, what do you mean you can't find miners? He said, he's not, uh, he's not in the carpenter shop. He's not in the carpenter shop. So I gave the alarm, lock all the prisoners down. They had prisoners out that were um, watching television in the uh, day room, prisoners that were working in the kitchen and all that sort of stuff. So I uh, locked the jail down, I want to come. And then I found out that there were four prisoners missing. What had happened, they had gone into this room the, the, the instructor for, the, for this class, he wasn't a prison officer, he was just an outside uh, instructor, so he wasn't trained in security. Mm. These guys had gone into the room with the pretense of uh, going in there to put up some wood, and he just forgot about them. They, well, they, they knew that you know, they had the opportunity. They um, yanked the bars out of the, uh, the window in there. Wow. And um, they, they used wood to like leverage, you know, to leverage, leverage the bars. They, they only need to take one or two out where they could squeeze through. Anyhow, they took that and then they shimmy down the wall on one of the uh, electrical cable. They found some electrical cable and they, they use that as rope. And um, one of the guys, the guy from Brooklyn, he um, he was uh, sliding down this, uh, this, this rope and his glasses fell off. He, had, he wore the glasses, his glasses fell off and he couldn't find his glasses. The other one, the big guy, big eggs, eggs is down, and um, it, was, it was a long way down, like about three stories up. And eggs, the, 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 the uh, this cable that they slid down on, must have been a eggs lost his um, grip on the cable, fell, fell, and fell. Anyhow, the one uh, that lost the glasses, they found, we found him about two hours later, because he couldn't see without his glasses. He was wandering all around the backyard there. And, uh, some people called to see if somebody's out there in the backyard and didn't know what their intentions are and whatnot. So he's rushed up there and caught him, caught him, caught him back. Uh, the two of them they found down near the aquarium. This is weeks later now. They finally found their way down to the aquarium down there in Flats. And they were at 2 o'clock in the morning. They were trying to swim from one side to the other. And someone that lived in the air, the splashing, looking for there was a big fish or something, and noticed that two guys were trying to swim across. It's two two thirty in the morning. Yeah. So they called the police. The police rushed down there, and there was two of the guys that we had three. The fourth one we didn't get till six months later. The fourth one was the the guy that investigated all this. He used he he um recruited the other three as um diversions. So anyhow they. they they searched all the island. We were uh, sure that he wasn't on the island, not after six months. So what they did, they um, kept an eye on his girlfriend. They knew that sooner or later the girlfriend would make a move. And she did. She, she uh, applied for an airline ticket. And, uh, These stories gave me a reminder of what it really meant to be in prison on Paradise. The unwilling sacrifices made by a few in order to protect the many. And also how challenging it was for people to come out of isolation. How they had to relearn how to eat with a fork and knife and not just a spoon. 
and how at the end of it many of them just wanted to return because inside was easier than life outside. So much of what David shared resonated with me as a different lens to look at the current COVID situation. Some of us will struggle coming out of isolation because the timing will be different for everyone. And if there's anything that was clear to me, it was that breaking out early instead of serving your time only land you back in Paradise Prison. And that's it for today. Back next week with more from my correspondent. Do join me.